Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Alison McCauley. Alison has a two decades long strategy consulting career where she advised technology first startups and Fortune 500 companies, including PNC, Adobe, Oracle, IBM, First Data, and Verizon. She has been working with early stage teams in data science and analytics, machine learning, IoT, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence before turning her focus to the blockchain and crypto asset space. Allison has a master's in sociology and organizational behavior from Stanford University, and she is the author of the book Unblocked How Blockchains Will Change Your Business, available in January 2019. And now to the interview. Hi, Alison, and many thanks for making time today. Thanks so much, Manuel. You're currently writing a book about blockchain technology called Unblocked, How Blockchains Will Change Your Business. And um, maybe let's start with how you developed the idea to write this book. Yeah, so I'd been working in the blockchain space for some time. And the more time I spent in the space, the more I realized there was a huge gap between the vision of the future that those who understood blockchains saw and the rest of the world. And it struck me how friends that were professionals running businesses and lawyers and doctors didn't really understand the technology. And I'd have them come up to me and say kind of a little sheepishly, you know, I don't really know what this is. And so this gap, I thought, was not only worrisome because they couldn't see what was coming, but also dangerous because these are, this is a moment in time where foundational systems are being laid and these, this, these rails for a new world are being put into place. And I think it's really important that we have as many voices as possible to make sure that this new world, when it happens, is indeed better. Mm -hmm, cool. I mean, there. Are, I'm sure you know all these other books as well, right? On blockchains, like um, absolutely, yeah. The Tapscott book, right? Blockchain Revolution, Truth Machine. Um, how do you feel your book will contribute to this conversation? Well, what I noticed about these books is that people would read them and still not understand. And so I took a look at what was going on. And there, one of the challenges is that this technology can do so much, right? It's a multifunction, multi-tool. And so it's very difficult for someone who's just coming in the space to break it down for them in a way that their brains can digest it. And so I, my goal and what I saw as the gap that I wanted to fill was to break it down in such a way that it was more easily understood and not overwhelm them by throwing it all out at once. And so what I really put an emphasis on 
was putting context as to how this is a social movement as much as a technology. Also ensuring that I'm giving the grounding for how we were already on this path already. So I broke it down into six dimensions. And for each of those, I speak about what is the backdrop, the context at where this technology comes into our, our being. So um, I talk about the, the macro impact and the macro shifts in our world. I talk about what the technology enables that triggers an evolution. And then I talk about some of the implications for that. And then for each of those dimensions, I also give examples of what pioneers in the space are working on so that people can get a feeling, a substantive feeling for what's actually happening in the space. So that's what I saw was missing, was a way to codify it in, um, in a way that could be easily understood. Who should be the main readers of the book? So I think that's such an interesting question because when I first went out to write the book, My focus was on the non-blockchain native executive. And I pictured this as the executive in an enterprise or the executive in a new company that's not blockchain native or blockchain first. But an interesting thing has happened because as early readers have been reviewing the book, I've noticed that the crypto community is very interested in it because there it, it gives them context for what they know in their gut mm -hmm. i mean when we last spoke you also said um businesses need to get more comfortable with blockchains but if you put yourself in the shoes you know maybe of a like you said non-blockchain native executive what could they say in their defense you know why they are still on the fence about this technology The instinct I've noticed is fear. Let's inoculate ourselves against this thing. Let's kill this thing or let's ignore this thing. And so what I'm noticing, you know, pilots, enterprise pilots are stalling and they're hitting the constraints of physics. And um, we're, in, we're, in, we're still in a hype cycle where at first there's these inflated expectations and then they fall into this trough of disillusionment. That's where we are. We're in this trough of disillusionment. And so there's this temptation to just sort of do nothing, wait it out, see what happens, wring your hands, fret a little bit. Um, Don't do anything but, wrong, right? By yeah, doing this. exactly. Yeah. But I, I'm seeing that smart organizations are taking this time as things are still taking shape. They're taking this time to learn, to experiment. They're getting their hands dirty. They're trying things out. And so even, and that's very difficult to do. It's painful because, it, because you're seeing things fail, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they're, they're learning. And what I've also noticed is that they think about something I'm calling blockchain literacy. And I think this is where, where things will start to move forward. If you think about it, this is something technologists cannot do on their own. They need to make sure that they're identifying use cases that will actually bring impact to the business right now. And the only way to do that is to get the subject matter experts that are involved in the business processes, that are involved in different parts of the business to the table, get them to understand blockchain technology. And only through this can you identify the use cases that are actually going to make impact. And so I think that part of this Part of, part of the reason 
that uh, it's been so difficult in these, these large organizations is because there's too few people that are actually blockchain literate. And that you need to get multidisciplinary, diverse perspectives around the table to even be able to identify how is this actually going to move our business forward? And you need, it's competitive. You need to do that faster than your competitors. Someone's going to crack it before you do if you don't know how to raise blockchain literacy in your organization. Is, is maybe also another reason why they don't necessarily want to dive in headfirst in, into blockchain technology that there are so many promises around about what the technology can do or can't do or should do or shouldn't do that it's just, you know, downright confusing to them? Yeah. And I always say a confused mind says no, right? So if you're confused, you're just going to say no. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, that's dangerous. So I think that what another reason to raise blockchain literacy is to understand what, when to call bullshit. When is this real? When is it not? And you can't do that unless you understand. And so it's very easy to, it's very easy to not only not understand when it becomes real, but not understand when to actually put real resources against this or understand if your competitors are making something up that's not actually not actually true. And that's happening a lot right now. So it's it, because it feels so scary, that is a reason to devote some resource to understanding, learning, and experimenting, and also to find like-minded partner organizations or potential partners in your industry, across industries, uh, different companies that have the same intent around your customers to understand how you can collaborate and work together. This is, this is a long arc. This is going to be a very long time before companies are truly collaborating through this new technology. And we're seeing some early experiments, but there need to be a lot more. Let's, I mean, if, if I imagine um, I, you know, was working somewhere in, in a corporation and, and I had some pressure, you know, not huge, not very urgent to, to get up to speed with this crazy thing called blockchain technology, but I don't really know where to start. So where, where do you think is a good starting point for someone like this? Yeah. So within an organization, I think a great place to start is to first bring together the people who are passionate or interested in this technology, because you probably have a bunch of people spread out in the organization that already have knowledge. And so one of the challenging but important things is to set up some way to find them, connect them, and see what kind of learning you already have in the organization. So, what, what way would be an example of that? Well, I've in, in the book, I profile uh, several companies. And what I've learned from those companies and others is that many are starting blockchain groups that start quite grassroots. In fact, they might even be started by just someone who's interested in this, thinks it is important for the company. They are not often particularly high up in, in management. And they start to gather people and put out the word, I'm interested. And sometimes, sometimes these become bigger. Sometimes the people who are doing that are wise enough to get higher level executive sponsorship, start holding meetings, start holding lunch and learns. And so I've seen 
groups that started with just a few people, super grassroots, turn into corporate initiatives with 60, 70 people involved. And so that's one piece to get started. But the wisest companies are also supplementing that with education where they're bringing in speakers, they're providing courses, they're making proactive efforts to make sure that they're raising the understanding of what this technology is capable of. And then brainstorming discussion can start to happen about, okay, how does this apply to our business? But the first piece is to understand how do we educate our employees and how do we connect all those nodes of passion within our organization so that we're really, we're really being as competitive as we can with tapping into the knowledge we already have that we didn't even know we had. And and then, I mean, let's say let's say there are some meetups, there are some, you know, maybe groups where, you know, people discuss what what blockchains can do, but how do you make the, you know, how do you bridge the gap between idea and actually starting implementation? So here's one approach that I've seen to work, and this is to get to Use cases that look like they're worth piloting, right? So that's the, that would be the, the next the next piece. So it, once you've established a relatively no, a knowledgeable core group that's got diversity across the organization, different functional backgrounds, and in different places within the organization, and they're coming together and they understand the technology and what the technology is capable of. The next step is really to identify potential use cases. And so I've seen different organizations approach this in different ways. What's really important is to make sure that whatever use cases you're identifying are strategically aligned with the values of the organization or else they're going to be dead on arrival, right? There's If you can't get the excitement and they can't align with the values of the organization, they're, they're never going to work. So then once you have this list of, of candidate use cases, then... I think the, the wisest thing is to first do everything you can to find a non-blockchain answer to the problems raised in the use cases, <laughs> right? So find all these problems and then see if you can find a way to answer that without blockchain. Because that's going to be right now the most efficient way. Then that will help to raise to the top those that are actually candidates for this technology, And then to run those through additional filters. And ideally, you're getting to a very small handful of potential pilots to try out. And another thing that I think will be interesting as the as solutions evolve a little bit further is to take a look at where is the where's the the block where where's blockchain technology evolved enough to attack a key pain point in the organization. So for example, one thing I'm keeping an eye on is ad fraud. So much money is wasted on ad fraud. And blockchain provides a really interesting potential solution to that. And so I think that there's going to be some areas in the organization. Uh, KYC is another one where there's a lot of work being done in that space. And so, and there's a lot of organizations, there's a lot of enterprises that are spending so much money on on this, on very painful KYC processes. So even though they may not be the most sexy 
use cases, they might be a chance for the organization to try out the technology, learn about the technology, and start proving in a small area a return. And once you have that knowledge and once you've got that small win, then you can look to expand it. So I'm not saying that this is an either or, but I think there's multiple ways in and the umbrella message is really to hone in on where you can actually have a win, a small win and start small, start there. And even if you don't get to that point where you're finding something that's viable, the applied learning, the kind of learning you do when you're actually, it's, it's not ivory tower, it's not conceptual, it's not just going to conferences, you're actually digging in and getting your hands dirty in the technology, that returns so much more than, 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 not, than not actually getting in on it. You must experiment to learn what this can do and also to understand and be able to sense when things are shifting. Things are shifting, what, what do you mean? So this is, this is evolving quickly. There are so many minds that are working on this. There's so much capital going into the space. So there's going to be a shift where things actually start to return value more quickly. This will happen. You want to make sure that you're tapping in and understand when that is. And if you haven't started to learn, you're going to miss it. Someone else is going to get it before you. You mentioned a few applications before, um, KYC, detecting ad fraud. Um, what are some of those narratives you know, that you've seen in your research that won executives over you know, to say, okay, let's try this. Let's, let's try a pilot with this idea. Yeah, I think I think that these are very early experiments. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say it's one people over, and I wouldn't suggest being one over either. I'd I think it's more of a tone of let's see what's let's let's quantify what ad fraud is costing us today. Let's see what ad fraud is cost, fraud is costing us today. Let's make sure that we're seeing what pioneers are doing in the space. Let's evaluate where they are. Let's evaluate their solutions against that. And let's start working with some of those that are most prominent, sorry, most evolved to see what's actually working. And let's do some experiments. So that's, you know, I I would advise people not to be won over by anything yet, but simply to make sure that you're quantifying what the value could be. Same thing with KOIC. What is... What's the, what's the cost to our organization today of KYC and the way we do it? Now let's, let's work with some of the leaders in the space in, that are approaching this from a blockchain technology perspective. And let's see what they are promising and what their vision is. And let's find some people to start experimenting with and working with. And also to join a consortium so that you can share your learning. This is definitely a space where the rate of innovation, the rate of change makes it impossible for one organization to truly keep up. And so you need to find people that you're willing to share knowledge with and share learning with and start practicing collaboration. That's going to be such an important skill in this new blockchain era might as well start practicing it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. I mean, I just uh, I just mentioned that because uh, a few months ago I had a conversation with, I think it was uh, Jesse McWaters from the World Economic Forum, and and he said, you know, blockchain technology is this this kind of blank canvas for for 
all kinds of people to imagine a better future. And, and you know, they, with, with, when they talk about blockchain technology, you know, they, they don't have to be afraid of sounding, you know, too delusional or too esoteric. They can paint these really broad strokes and big pictures of what the future is going to be. But it's not necessarily about blockchain technologies, but it's just about being more open-minded. And, um, yeah, maybe that's how it all begins. So I strongly believe that what this technology will enable is it enables and creates an expectation for businesses to be, they're going to have to be more collaborative with our customers. The, it, the, the idea of a zero-sum game, and this, this is with B2C, it's with B2B, it's with every configuration that you can think of. Customers are going to expect the businesses that they interact with to be more collaborative with them. There are so many different aspects of this technology that, that deliver to that. And so companies need to start thinking now about how do I do that? How do I get away from the zero-sum game of what, you know, I, I take what you have. How do you make it more? How do we create value together? How can we create value together? Mm -hmm. But what is, what is an example of that, you know, that would really require a blockchain? So what I think we'll see is that companies are going to find comp competition from the actual, their customers. So I could have this enterprise of one where I have a way to monetize my content, monetize my data, monetize my data exhaust coming off of my fitness tracker. So there's, there are pioneers that are working on models where they've essentially infused the sharing economy with a token model. So I can actually take my, my bike or my drill or whatever it is that, that I want to monetize and put it out so that my whole neighborhood could use that. I could be compensated through tokens for that. Uh, there are micro insurance players that they all look quite experimental now, but someone will eventually break this that could provide insurance for that item when it's no longer, when it's not in my house and my neighbor's using it, it enables a way for us to share that we never have before. Now, how does a company compete with that? Uh, let's go back to the question where we were talking about value. So I think an interesting way to think about value, and I'm going to start with a non-blockchain example, but let's think about how the automotive industry is experiencing a bit of a crisis right now because people no longer want to buy cars. So millennials don't want to buy cars. They want to, they want to use the asset, but they don't want to actually purchase it. They don't want to own it. So one model that a lot of automotive players are taking on right now is a subscription model. So they're providing these car subscriptions and they're bundled with all sorts of great things. They've got insurance and they enable you to swap out the car. So if you do one with Mercedes, you can decide, well, this weekend I want an SUV to go to the mountains and next weekend I want a, a convertible to go to the beach and you can swap it out. So there's these really interesting, rich models that enable you to, they, enable, they deliver a lot of value to the consumer. So the, the company that say, sells me a, a washing machine. They could offer through what blockchain technology enables 
they could offer a washing machine that has insurance associated with it, right? I can buy insurance. It's already associated with it. They could, if it was integrated with sensors that um, told me when parts were going to um, go out, I could, I could have theoretically a washing machine that alerted a service provider when I, when my machine was going to go out, negotiated contract with that service provider, figured out when they could come to the house. If we were to take this quite futuristic example a little bit further, I could have that person come to my house. I could have the door unlock for them with my automatic lock. Um, I could have insurance while they were in the house, a micro insurance that enabled them to repair it. But if they broke something while they repaired it, that I'd be covered. So you could almost imagine one day a a token and blockchain fueled uh, service economy that enabled us to get all this richness and all this value around our washing machine. Mm -hmm. And today we don't need to do that, right? Today that's not, that's not possible. And we have to deal with it ourselves when it goes out and it creates all this problem. But these kinds of models where you've got different players from different industries collaborating to provide more value to a consumer, this is, this could be possible. We're a long way off, but that's the kind of visionary thinking that is going to be important for players in the space. And what you're talking about is not only providing more value to the consumer, but you're also talking about a new kind of collaboration. So that's an example about how we need to move to more collaboration in order really for us to to deliver more value in the space. So new kinds of businesses need to collaborate. New kinds of partners need to collaborate. And also you have this more collaborative relationship with your customer where you're figuring out what they need upstream or downstream of their interaction with your product and using that to figure out how to deliver more value to them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Interesting. I want to I want to ask a little bit about how you went about writing the book so the process of writing and and research as well so maybe how did you uh, conduct the research for the book when I first decided to write the book I wanted to first take it through a what I'll call a proof of concept to really understand could I break this space down into very a framework or dimensions or something that enabled it to be explained in a more mm. approachable way. And so I sequestered myself for two weeks up in the mountains in the snow <laughs> and just me and my dog. And I tested that. And so I'd been working in the space for a while and I started, I had post-it notes and Sharpies and poster board. And I went to town taking all of this universe of ideas and thought that was happening in the space and tried to find a way to, to organize it. And what I, the conclusion I came to was that the focal point that, was going to be important for making this approachable was how will your customer change over time? How will expectations change for your customer? Mm. And once I had hit on that, it was really easy to pick 
um, I ended up with six dimensions. It was easy to pick six dimensions for um, th that illustrated what kinds of shifts would be characteristic of this new era of the blockchain era. And then to provide context around each of those for you know, what, what's the, what's the, what's the background for this? How are we already moving in this direction? What does the technology trigger or catalyze? And then what are some of the implications of that? And then what are some of the people doing in the space today in this? And so that's how I broke it down. Mm -hmm. and, and you just mentioned it, uh, the last point, what are some of the people doing in this space today? So you also conducted interviews with people. Yeah. So once I had those six dimensions, it gave me a focal point and some structure. And then I talked to people across the space. So there were, I had a long list for every dimension of people I wanted to reach out to. and. I, I went far and wide. I spoke to pioneers that are doing interesting things in the space to understand a little bit more about what their thinking was. But I also talked to people who were working in areas outside of the space that provided important context. I talked to uh, individuals that work in the data science space to understand a little bit more about what will happen when we break out of our data silos and what that future will look like. Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own, the Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. Is there anything, you know, any insight in how you got people excited to, to talk to you? Because, I mean, I'm experiencing this all the time, right, with this podcast. I mean, I send out lots of emails. And so I'm just wondering how you um, got people excited, you know, to, um, to spill the beans for you. Yeah, you know, people, the, the top, the, the subject, the intent of the book, the intent to really help educate resonates, I found, with this community mm -hmm. because I think that people understand that we won't get to adoption unless more people understand the potential. Can't do it alone, right? Chris Dixon said that we need 10 million more people in this army and they need to be from diverse professions, right? They need to be product developers and designers and UX specialists. And so I think that people, it resonated with them that I was really looking to educate and help people understand the space in a responsible way. So I didn't have too much trouble getting a hold of people. And so I got, I got uh, some wonderful, wonderful input from people all over the world. What was the main surprise, maybe, that you learned? So I actually think my answer to this is going to surprise you. Um, so frankly, uh, my, my key surprise was how fast things are moving along. So I, I know it doesn't feel that way. And when you're in the midst of it and you're facing every day the challenges of scalability and facing some of the barriers that you're seeing in the technology or dealing with a pilot that's stalling. Um, it doesn't feel that way. But 
if you look at this historically and you look at how long it takes various technologies to be adopted and become mainstream in our world, and you go all the way back to, say, the telephone, which took 35 years to, to get to a quarter, just a quarter of the American population. And you compare that to the web, which just took seven years. And, and you think about how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are working on this and the capital going in, your, in the space. It's moving really quickly. And so it's very difficult from the vantage point of here and now to feel like, like that. But when you step back and look at how dispersed the innovation is, and you look at how much is being invested in the space, it's moving really quickly. It's moved so, so fast in just a few years. And so these next few years, I think we all better put our seatbelts on because it's going to move even faster. Were there also things that you had to change your opinion about? So I didn't come in with the preconception of what I would find. The book really talks about what emerged from that exploration. So there was one area where I, I there was a little bit of an aha, where I um, discovered something that felt so prescient. It just, it struck me. So in one of the, one of the dimensions I explore, I call bigger data. So this tells the story of the potential for the technology to break data out of corporate silos. And then talks about what's possible in that world. What will that world look like once we can do that? How will that change our world? And I discovered that back in 2007, so before Satoshi Nakamoto's paper came out, Sandy Pentland and uh, a group proposed something to the World Economic Forum called A New Deal on Data. And this piece is incredible to read. So Sandy Pentland, um, he was a founding member of Google's advisory board and Forbes named him a Uh, world's most powerful data scientist. So he, he knows data. <laughs> And so in, in this new deal on data, he talks about how, you know, our data is, is worth more when, sh when shared and that it's aggregate data that's averaged and combined across populations. It's really going to move and advance our world forward in, you know, in public health or transportation or government or whatever it may be. When data scientists are talking about using data to fight climate change or uh, poverty or hunger, that's the kind of data they're talking about. The stuff that is not limited, is, is, is not, in a corporate silo, but it's broken out of those. And so if corporations own the data, this, this can never happen, right? We can't get to that. And so the new deal on data, the, the cornerstone of this proposal was that if we were going to be a successful data-driven society, that we need to be guaranteed that our data won't be abused, And so it called for ownership of the data to return to the people, but it didn't propose how. And so right. to me, that was a, an incredible prescient historical document. And so the, it, this, was, this was discussed at the World Economic Forum and it, it, there's indications that uh, these discussions contributed to the adoption of GDPR and, and this movement that we're on now. But 
um, when I read that and then realized, well, today you know, we've got, you know, what, uh, you know, maybe there's a, over a hundred self-sovereign identity data projects that are, that are out there. And, um, you know, this is important historical context to know that this is this is something we're already been moving towards. This is enabling something where there has been groundswell for for some time. Mm -hmm. You explained before how you went about research for for the book. How did you go about writing? <laughs> so, uh, I have in my garage a table saw, and it has always impressed me how this table saw just eats up wood. <laughs> so fast. And so that's, uh, my friends joke that, that I am like a table saw just eating through it. Um, I can get very intense in my research. So I basically, uh, kind of went into a cave and, uh, intently research and, uh, worked on this book seven days a week for months on end. And, um, I even, kind of stop parenting. I have two teenagers and I stopped making them dinner or telling them when to go to bed. They, hmm. they got through it. Um, but it was, it was just in an intense period of time. And why I was able to do that in that way was because I felt such a passion for the hope and for our world that this space provides. And I was so inspired by all the different types of people that were working on different aspects of the problem. So it enabled me to really spend time in that way, in, in that intense way. Mm -hmm. Cool. And it's, it feels to me, it's almost the only way to do it, right? I mean, it's like the books I've written. Um, I've, I've seen the same thing there. You're just, at some point, you just have to put your head down and forget about everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's ugly truth. I, yeah. It's either that or it takes you years to write it and, There's no, we don't have years. This space yeah. is moving too fast. Not for a topic like this, yeah. Mm -mm. When writing the book, um, was there something that you learned about yourself? <laughs> um, I, learned, uh, I learned that I could be incredibly intense. I kind of already knew that. Um, so I learned that, <laughs> that something I, I already understood. I have trouble shutting things off. And so there was... There was a moment where I realized just how profound this was. So I had, I had, as soon as I started this project, I stopped my daily meditation. I would eat kind of whatever was in the house. I stopped eating properly. I didn't sleep as much. Uh, but it was when I took my kids up to a family camp to try to get a little balance back in our lives. And my children caught me posting a sign right by the rock climbing signups for an impromptu blockchain meetup that <laughs> I'd, I'd written on a piece of paper. Hey, is anyone interested in an informal discussion about crypto and blockchain? Meet me in the grand hall. Mm, <laughs> funny. I actually got, I got quite a people to show up, but I realized that I had trouble shutting it off. And I noticed this about a lot of people in this space yeah. where, um, you know, people outside the space don't understand that. And so it's, um, It's, it's, I find that I, I'm spending more and more time uh, of my time with people inside the space who can understand this, this aspect of me. Mm -hmm. Are you finished now writing or are you still in the process? Yeah. So the manuscript uh, goes off for layout on Sunday. So it's near. Oh, good. Complete. Congrats. I, 
Yeah, I'm just doing final fact checking at the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, after the book came out and, you know, it's in stores and it's available online, what would make it a success for you? So it'll be a success in my mind if it is, if people come away from this book feeling like they've got a grounding in this technology and are inspired to learn more. So that's what it's meant to be is an introduction to this space to make it feel safe to learn more. And hopefully, hopefully it will spark some, some interest. Hopefully it will inspire them. And so it's written very differently, like the rest of the, what I've seen out there from blockchain books. It's really meant to help people understand the human side of this and what kind of difference it can make in our world and in their businesses. So that would be, that would feel like to me, like a success if people feel like they've learned something from it and they're, they're ready to learn more. They want to learn more. Mm -hmm. If anyone, you know, wanted to write a book as well and, and wants your advice on how to do this best, what uh, would you tell them? Well, first of Well, I'd love to talk to them. This has been an incredible process. Mm -hmm. It started off with, it felt almost like a curse because it was so, <laughs> uh, it, it, I knew this was going to be a big project. I knew there would be sacrifice involved. But what I found is once I gave myself the permission to spend all day writing and thinking, it became this wonderful journey. And so I think part of it is to, to, discover the fun in this. And it can feel like this huge looming goal, but I had, I, I made friends through this book. My editor and I will now be lifelong friends. <laughs> I have made friends that I started off just reaching out to them and saying, I'm interested in what you do. And I, for this reason, And we need friends. So it has created this whole new community. And I think really that if you look at it as a, a passion project, but you also remind yourself of through the, pro through the process, when it gets hard, how, how do you make sure you're having fun with it and it energizes you, that that's really important. You know, I had my son, I, I was... I had hit some milestone with the book. I think I just finished, you know, finished a chapter that I felt really good at. And I was sitting at my computer and I, I made a comment. And my son was also sitting at his computer. He's, he's 15. And he turned to me and he said, you know, mom, it's great to see you so engaged. And I thought that was really a weird word for a teenager to use. I probably had used it on him. But it, it, was, it was pretty cool to have this, this kid um, just call out like the energy that, that writing a book has created. And so I think that this is something that is very possible in the book writing process. And I think one of the best reasons to write a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. It's your first book, right? It is my first book. I have never, I've never felt a reason to write before. I've been working in new technologies at the intersection of, of new technology and social science for 20 years, but there's nothing that I've been willing to vote, devote myself to like I've been willing to devote myself to this space. Nothing had enough layers to it. Nothing was intellectually stimulating enough until now. Hmm. 
Can you put your finger on it? I mean, you, you said nothing was as stimulating, but what what is that, you know, that um, that lure almost of, of this technology that, you know, kind of drew you in? I think there's two things. You know, when I first heard, of, I, I'd heard about this for some time, but I was skeptical. Like so many are today, I was skeptical. And so I had a client come to me who was looking to make a move in the space, a former client. And I sat down with his lead engineer for an hour. And I, I remember my, my body language when I sat down with him because I'm pretty mindful. And I remember noticing how crossed my arms were and I had no desire to uncross them. I was very skeptical. And he, it was probably an hour that I, I drilled him and I came out completely dazed. And the reason was because one by one, it seemed to me that this technology offered the promise to address every single pool of digital discontent. <laughs> I call it digital discontent, right? Our lack of control of our data, our privacy, you know, the imbalance in, in our digital lives with centers of power that are taking, taking so much um, and giving us so little. And one by one, I just saw those falling. And I, I literally, I was almost dizzy coming out of that because I realized that this, this, there was something there. there this, this could actually offer hope that we so badly needed in our world. Cool. I mean, it's, it's the story that I hear sometimes, not always, but um, I mean, I feel it's the most interesting discussions I had ever about technology, right? I mean, nobody got excited about HTML, or, <laughs> but here it's entirely different. It is because it also, this technology, it can apply to so many different things that so many different people are passionate about. And I think that's why we're seeing such an uprising of excitement for it is because, and I, I like to play a game when I, when I do talks, which is called name that industry, where I have people call out industries and I throw out an interesting potential use case in that industry. And it can be really fun because people can throw out really obscure things. You could say, hmm, let me think. Oh, yes, it could do this or this. So I really do think that, like the internet was, uh, it, it offers so much applicability to connect and, and, and ability to connect with people's passions and desires. And I've, I've also noticed when I talk to people, when I was doing my research for the book, for most of the people that I talked to, I'd ask them, so tell me about your moment, that moment that you, <laughs> the rabbit hole you moment. discovered what this really could do. And everyone had a fascinating story and it, and it changed lives. It turned around lives. It pivoted careers. People would drop companies that they founded. People would drop their lives and they would switch and they'd turn. I also noticed some trends in those stories too, where uh, a lot of the people that I talked to had first come up, uh, first understood the power of the technology because they'd spent time in emerging emerging nations and developing countries, and they saw some of the pain that was, especially around payments, that would happen because there wasn't a technology like this, and so for them it fell in place very quickly. And so I really do think, and I heard from them, and I really do believe that 
sometimes emerging nations can be at the edge of innovation because they don't need to deal with the legacy infrastructure that exists. You know, right now in the U.S., we're so happy with, you know, in, in, in developing nations, we're so happy with our credit cards that give us points. And, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't need, we don't have the, as much pain, but there's a lot more pain in, 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 other regions of the world. And I do think that we'll see some fascinating innovation come, yeah. come from there. Yeah, cool. I mean, one of the things that's always at the at forefront, right, of this conversation about blockchains or not, is this battle between centralization and decentralization. So I'm wondering, did you also notice that in your in some of the conversations that you had with people that you interviewed for the book? Absolutely. And I bring that up in the book. This is such a relevant battle discussion that's happening and it's an important one. So when I was also inspired by one piece that I came across from Tim Wu. So Tim Wu's a, a Columbia professor and he's actually coined the phrase net neutrality. That was in the, in the early 2000s. But he, he wrote this great book called Master Switch that I came across during my research. And I think it's got some really important historical lessons in it for us. So he was able to show that over time, over time, there's a typical progression in all information technologies where they start off as somebody's hobby and then they become somebody's industry. They move from decentralized to centralized. So you could say we we're already seeing this, right? In the blockchain space. And he had a great example about radio. So when radio operators were first putting up towers, right? That was in the early 1920s. It was so people could talk to each other on this open broadcast medium. So they could talk to each other to someone in, the diff in a different town and it was open, right? So by the mid 1920s, there was NBC. So then all of a sudden it was controlled access, right? And if you wanted bandwidth, it it came it went through this this massive you know multi multinational company right. So what Wu says, Tim Wu says, is uh, it's quote I'll, I'll never forget. Before any question of free speech, is a question of who controls that master switch. So you know, while I think this is really important as these these technologies are being built is and we're baking in what that decentralized centralization looks like is, is that we're baking in a lot of thought about that that switch um, and I think this is important obviously for the crypto community who's building these but also for the non blockchain first community the the non natives to understand this history so they can ask the right questions as well. And, and we can make sure that we're building technologies that we want to shape our future, that we want to shape our world. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a risk of blockchain technology being co-opted and centralized currently? Yes, absolutely. I think, I think we're already seeing that. So, and, you know, I think that, I do think that. But so what's, like, an, what's an example of this? Yeah, I mean, what I worry mostly is a, and what's like big in my head is a silver nation using this to control citizens and to be able to watch all their economic activity and you tie it into medical records. And I mean, it's just that that's a very extreme and scary scenario. Um, I do think that 
decentralization is a, is a continuum, right? And I think that if we are to be realistic about this, we'll understand that we need to move in carefully and slowly in that direction. And that there's only a small subset of our population that is ready to jump into decentralized everything right away. And so if we want adoption, I think we have to be cognizant of that. So I talked to, uh, I've talked to many thoughtful blockchain entrepreneurs, but one who was working in the healthcare space talked about how, you know, when these when these techn- we, we, we don't decentralize for the sake of decentralization. We decentralize where it provides more value to the patient. And so I think it's going to be really important to be thoughtful about um, how, you, how you get a population used to interacting with decentralization and how do you, how you do, do decentralize in a way where it can gain adoption. And I think that you know, we'll probably end up somewhere in the middle. And my hope is that, that there will be passionate people that keep pushing us, pushing us, pushing us more towards more decentralization. That is my hope. But I think realistically, um, it's going to be a gentle progression. It's not going to be an extreme progression right away. You just mentioned one of your hopes. Um, what is maybe another wish that you have for the blockchain space in the future? So I have two teenagers and I have for some time been so disturbed about how my kids' data is um, and their attention is harvested and sold. And my hope is that when they reach their adulthood, that they are able to truly control their data and they're able to make a decision about how it's used and that it's not proliferating in servers around the world without their knowledge. That's, that's my hope. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Are your kids interested in blockchain technology? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, I've given the blockchain brain virus to most of the people that I'm close to in my life. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, so that includes my daughter, who the coach now calls her blockchain. Uh, the water polo coach calls her blockchain because she was so um, talking about the space so much. And I took her to some... Um, events. My son um, is interested, but quite skeptical. When I first told him what blockchain was, the, the, the first thing he said to me was, Baba, what about the quantum computers? <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. Good question. <laughs> Let's just say he got extra dessert that night. I thought it was an excellent question. <laughs> that's cool, though. I always wonder, you know, what it takes to get people excited. Um, and I think the younger people are, the less it takes, really. Yeah, I actually, that came out in interviewing people in the book. So uh, I interviewed a member of European Parliament who works with this technology. And she talked about how you know, young people that she talked to, this is extremely natural to them. And that it was so, so easy for them to imagine a world where they could buy a house on their phone without an intermediary. And... I also talked to, I talked to Jeremy Gardner. I talked to Stephen McKee. Um, these are both incredible 
uh, incredible people who are in their 20s who talk about the power of the technology for this generation. Jeremy Gardner talks about generation blockchain, a a term he coined, and how this is a generation for whom it's going to be as natural to interact with tokens and blockchain as it is for all of us today to use social or, or email. You you always I, I try to come to a close with the interview, but then you always go out on the on the branch there, and I feel oh this is interesting. We should also record this and that. Sorry, we'll definitely have to speak again when the book's out. So, Alison, where can people find your book and find more about you? Yeah, so you can follow me at Unblocked Future. You can learn more about the book at alisonmccauley.io or unblockedfuture.com. When it's out, you can uh, get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Alison, this was a lot of fun. And um, I feel we could have continued our conversation for at least another hour. So thanks a lot. I really enjoyed this conversation. Wonderful. And I really appreciate your taking time today. Thanks so much, Manuel. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.